All right, so we're coming back to 1 Samuel. I want to just take a real quick quick a real quick minute and uh, back up to and just kind of review real quick what what we've gone over so far and I'm probably going to do this the next couple of weeks before I start just because so many people are out on vacation and at the beach and and uh, to everybody that's watching a live stream I hope you have fun I hadn't made it to the beach yet thanks um, so we started out with uh a lady who could not have a child. And so she goes to the temple and she prays, God, if you just give me a child, Lord, I'll give him back to you. And God answers that woman's prayer and a little baby is born and she honors her promise and she takes that little baby Samuel back to the temple and there he serves. And we're shocked to learn that that temple, that house of God, that place that should have been filled with worship, that place that should have been filled with praise was actually... No better off, if not worse, in the world. Eli was a fat man who cared very little. He was just kind of rolling with the punches, going with what was going. And so much so, so unfamiliar with fervent prayer that when he sees Hannah praying, he thinks she's drunk. His sons are, are lecherous losers. They're hanging out in the temple so they can find them some ladies. They're stealing food. They're just doing whatever they want to do. They're just acting any way they want to act. And that's the house of God. And so much so that the nation of Israel, and I, I believe in everything in me, everything rises and falls on leadership. If the spiritual leadership has gone south, has gone, gone in a bad situation, then the, the, the church will follow, the, the nation of Israel followed. And so when they go up against the Philistines and it seemed like a, a hard situation that they, they couldn't overcome. In fact, the first time they came up against them, 4,000 of their soldiers died. So they say, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll use God like a good luck charm. Go grab the ark. They never thought to fall on their face before God and, and beg him for his mercies. They never thought to worship God the way he commanded them to. They ignored what their Bible said and they did it the way they wanted to do. And they went and got the ark even though it was supposed to be something that was contained in the holies of holies for the blood. And they treated it like it was a, a, a rabbit's foot and paraded it around. And God will never be your or my pocket God that we can put him in our pocket, do whatever we want to do, and then when we need him, we reach in, dig around, and pull him out and go, okay, God. And so 30,000 Israelites died, and the Philistines had the ark. We saw last week, though, that with no help from the children of Israel, God defended his name. One of the things that we need to remember, and sometimes we forget, as the church, God doesn't need us, we need him. God did not need the children of Israel to defend his name. He did that just fine. And so when the Philistines said, yeah, we got their, their golden box, and they took it into their temple and laid it and set it out in front of their God, that didn't work out too well for them either. Got up the next morning, and their God's laying on his face. They, they sit him back up. <laughs> They set their God back up. Can you just think about how silly that is? Um, and the next morning they get up, and not only is their God down, his head and his hands are on the threshold. And everybody in that city 
got, we decided last week we were going to go with tumors. I, I shared with you, if you weren't here last week, that the Hebrew word here, uh, I, Jerome handled the translation really well, is uh, God smote them in the most secret part of their posterior. They got hemorrhoids. Keep it on the down low. And so they took it to one city and all the men got hemorrhoids, some so bad that they died. That's a pretty bad case. And then they took it to the next city, same thing happened there. They go to take it to Gath, the last city, and the, the elders of Gath meet them at the gate and go, I don't think so. <laughs> uh-uh. And so the Ark of the Covenant kind of hangs out in Philistine, uh, Philistine for seven months, and that's where we find ourselves now. So, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So the Philistines want to get rid of this thing. So they call for the priest and the diviner and said, what do we do with this ark? Tell us where do we send it? So the diviner said, if you send away the ark of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return it with a guilt offering and then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Now, Isn't it strange that the children of Israel thought that they could use the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. They treated it with contempt. They treated it like it was was of no value. But here the Philistines, diviners and priests say, you can't just send it back. That thing's powerful. Romans chapter 1, Paul, describing all of humanity, says, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that has been made. So they are without excuse. What this text very clearly says is that every human being who has ever lived and ever will live knows that there's a God and knows that God punishes evildoers and rewards people who do good. So on a theological level, here from this text, I don't believe an atheist. I don't believe they exist. And from a practical level, I don't believe an atheist. Because every atheist I've ever met, and I know I've said this before, they know that there is no God and they hate his guts. That just doesn't make sense to me. But this text makes it very clear that all of mankind, they know that there's a God and they know that he punishes people who do bad things and he rewards people who do good things. They don't just know that there's some ethereal being out there. They know that there's a God, he's personal and he punishes and rewards. And I believe that. In fact, typically... When people's theology is, moves away from a God, it's because they want to do what they want to do. Because if there is a God, that means he has the right to tell us what to do because he's our maker. None of us, myself included, want to do what we're told to do. I want to do what I want to do. 
And so the Philistines recognized that they were God, that there was a God. They recognized that the things that were happening was in his power. And they said, these diviners, these witches, if you will, these, these spiritualists said, all right, okay, you need to send it. We need to send it back, but let's not send it back alone. But they didn't know what they were doing. They said, okay, here's what we got to do. We got to make five golden, I don't even know how you would sculpture a, a hemorrhoid. Mark, maybe you could, could get us out something maybe that we could go with. I don't know. Frankly, I don't want to know. And five golden mice. Now, what the, the Philistines didn't know was that mice are unclean. In Leviticus, we read, And these are unclean among you, among the swarming things that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind. And so what they were doing was they were being naturalist. They were saying, okay, here's the thing that's messed us up. Apparently there were mice around. Some of your study Bibles may even say that, that um, the mice implied that, that there were mice there as well as the tumors. And so maybe what they had was the bubonic plague because uh, when, uh, the, the buboes swell up. And that's, you get these things when you get bubonic plague. And that, that's what was going on because of the mice. But recently in the last couple of years or so, they've determined that the fleas from mice isn't what caused the bubonic plague. And that's, ladies and gentlemen, while we don't base their theology on what science says, we just stick with what the Bible says. No, no, why they had mice, but they had mice too. So they're thinking, okay, since we've got mice, since we've got tumors, what we'll do is we'll make gold ones and we'll send that back and that will appease them. And that's, you know what, honestly, I cut them some slack because they didn't have access to the Bible. They didn't know what was going on. They're just trying, they're groping in the dark. And so they do this. And they come up with a plan. They did kind of a, a, a fleece, if you will. They said, here's what we'll do. We'll take two cows that have never pulled anything. We'll put a yoke on them and we'll hook them up to a cart. And then we'll take their calves, put them over here. Because everybody knows that if a cow and a calf get separated, the mama cow is going to want to go to her babies. Actually, any critter, you separate the mama and the baby, let them both go, they're going to find each other pretty quick. So if the cows go running over to Israel, then we know it was of God. If they do what they should normally do, then we'll know it was just a coincidence, as they said, and so we can move on. It's like they almost wanted to be proved that they could keep the box. And you know, as Christians, we do that sometimes. I've had a lot of people say, oh, I'm just, I'm just putting out a fleece. God, if you really want me to do this, then, you know, make it, make it snow in October. If it snows in October, God, then I know you really want me to do this. And, and people look at the, the fleece that, that was put out where, um, God, I don't know if what you want me to do, but if you really want me to do what you told me you want me to do, make it to where when it does that the fleece is dry and all the ground's wet. And then, then that worked out, so make it now to where all the ground's dry and the fleece is wet. Whereas the real faith would have been just doing what God said to do, right? See, we don't, we follow that and act like that that's put in the Bible so that we can do it too. But the reality is, is what God demands of his people is obedience. I mean, that's playing a game with God. And we shouldn't be doing that. If we know what to do, we should do it. I read a book Probably, other than the Bible, the book that's influenced me uh, more and the, what I believe is 
pastoring and my responsibilities is a book called The Reformed Pastor, written by Richard Silby in uh, 1730s. And he, he, he felt like that the pastorate had gotten very corrupt and it needed to be reformed. And so that's why the title of the book. And I, I, someone uh, a long time ago for pastor appreciation got me a old, old, old copy of this book, which was very different than the paperback copy that I had first read. And so I got it and I opened it up and in Latin there was a, a verse in the New Testament, from the New Testament. And I, I don't read Latin, and so I'm like, I have no idea what it is, but I could figure out what the scripture was. And so I, I looked it up in my Bible, and the verse that Richard Sibley wrote in the front of the Reformed pastor, which I understand why modern translations have taken it out, says this. The verse says, that servant that knows what to do and does not do it, that servant is to be taken out and beaten. We won't print that on a t-shirt in the church today, I don't think. Now, what Richard Sibley was saying that to pastors, once you read this book, now you know what God requires of you, how God wants you to act, so you better do it. And I would say even in the, in, as Christians, most everybody in this room knows what to do to follow after Jesus. We know. We know what we're supposed to be doing. We just don't want to do it. We have the same problem with the Philistines. We want to do what we want to do. I'd much rather watch Oprah than read my Bible. That, that's a lie, not for me personally. That's what some of you are, are thinking. I would personally rather be carried out and beaten than, than uh, okay, I'm just getting myself in deeper and deeper trouble. Um, all right, let's move along. All right, so the Philistines turn return the Ark of the Covenant with these guilt offerings. So once they uh, release the calves, the cows turned neither to the right nor the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. So all the children of Israel, they're out, they're, they're working in their gardens, and they look up and they see that the ark, and they were excited. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. Now there was a great stone there. So they took the ark of the covenant off the cart, they split up the wood of the ark, and offer the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now here's where the problem starts. You see, the Philistines didn't know better than to do the things that they did. But at this point, we start seeing the children of Israel following what the Philistines were doing, and they knew better. See, the Bible says that if you're going to offer a burnt offering to the Lord, you offer a bull. You offer the best of yours. But they did what was convenient. And they followed after what the Philistines did and offered up these two cows. And then there's this big rock there. So the Levites took down the ark of the Lord with the box that was in it, with the golden figures. Remember they had the, the, the carved hemorrhoids and the, the, uh, the rats in the box. And so they put the ark of the covenant on the stone. And they took those golden idols and put it right there beside the Ark of the God, just as if that was the same thing. Now, do you think that God blessed that? We read at the end of this text 
that 70 men died for staring at the Ark of the Covenant. Apparently, they turned the Ark into a tourist attraction. Hey, come see the Ark. Come have a look-see. And so God struck some people dead. And that's sad, but what's really sad to me is this. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the houses, a house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So for 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant was just there. And the children of Israel were just there. No power. Not doing what they were supposed to do. And life just ground out. You see, when we think about how Satan attacks, when I do, I'm tempted to think of Amy Carmichael talking about the devil dancers outside of the walls of the city. Or Haiti, where I remember I went to Haiti right after the earthquake. And I was... uh, the presidential palace was on one side of the street and it collapsed. I don't know if you remember seeing the pictures of that. And on the other side of the street in Port-au-Prince was a police station that was one of the few buildings in Port-au-Prince that was built with reinforced concrete. So it stood. And so the, the government turned that building over to Doctors Without Borders and we uh, uh, and they, they set up in there. And I, I showed up um, about two, three days after the earthquake, and my job there was to be to survey because we had people, churches in America that wanted to give, but they didn't want to just throw money at a problem, so they wanted somebody to go in as an advanced party. So my job originally was I was supposed to get there and just kind of survey the city and then write up some recommendations. But when I got there, there was still so much going on in Port-au-Prince that when people are dying, you can't go, well, I hate that for you, but i got to fill out this report. And so I ended up working in that Doctors Without Borders station, helping them... Uh, they, they taught me how to put an IV in, which was the only, I'm not medically minded at all, but I got taught how to do an IV, um, and so uh, people would come in, and I would, I would put an IV in, and that was, that was kind of my job, and I functioned as the chaplain, and I remembered really well these doctors, and the group that I was with was from Chicago, a doctor going, hey preacher, we got a demon possessed guy over here, and I would come pray for him. It was like all those pretenses kind of fall away when you're in the real life, but we think in Port-au-Prince, that with those kind of, that demonic activity going on, uh, I was there for about five or six days, and then Sunday came around, and I asked one of the policemen there, I said, is there a church that I can go to? And he said, well, there used to be a Baptist church, just right down the road here, if you want to go, I'll take you. And so he and I walked um, to where this church had been, and in the street in front of where the church was collapsed, these believers had set up folding chairs that they had gotten out of the rubble and they were having church. I'm like, yes. And so I'm sitting there and that we sing, they sang the same songs that we, hymns that we sang and just sang them in a different language. And so I got to sing along with them, worship with them. And in maybe 30 minutes, a guy walked up at the back, uh, or actually would have been the front of where we were so that he was facing me and he was naked from head to toe as the day he was born and he was covered in lime. 
So he had this white paint looking all over him, and his hair was pulled straight up. He was a really dark African, he wouldn't have been African-American, I guess he'd be African-Haitian. I don't know what term to use. Uh, black guy, and he, so he's covered in this white paint, and his hair's all crazy, and he comes in, and from the moment that he got there, he just stared at me. And I, you know, after a while, big naked guy staring at you, you start feeling a little uncomfortable. And so... Uh, I asked the policeman, I'm like, who, who, who is that? And he goes, he's a voodoo priest. And I'm like, okay, does he go to church often? I mean, is this normative? And after some whispering in the congregation, he was there for me. He was there to curse me. When we think of how Satan works, that's what we think of in our mind, right? Somebody's going to put a curse on you. Somebody's going to throw some chicken bones at you or pentagrams or somebody's going to throw up pea green soup. What I see in this story is one of Satan's tools at work. Just life grinding you out. Blinding you to the fact that the, the victory that's available and God is just at hand's reach. If you'll just reach out and do what he told you to do. But for 20 long years, the children of Israel, nothing exciting happened. Nothing exploded. Their lives were just ground down, never calling out unto the Lord. That's how Satan attacks us in this country. And he wins time after time after time. We just get up. Eat our Cheerios, go to a soul-sucking job, work 10 hours, come home, help the kids with homework, clean up the house, do the laundry. Maybe watch a little TV, get to bed at 11 and get up tomorrow and do the same thing. And practically, you're an atheist. Practically speaking, God has no impact in your life. And for 20 long years, the children of Israel had the very life ground out of them one day at a time. And all the while, the truth of what they had to do was looking them in the face. God made it very clear when the law was given that if we, you called on the name of the Lord, he was there. If my people will fall on their face and call on me, I'm there for you. They had seen it worked out in their, their, their history over and over and over again that when the Philistines would come and persecute them and hold them down, at some point somebody would go, hey, let's call on God. And they would call on God and then God would deliver them. So they knew it worked. They knew what the book said. They just didn't make time for it. And for 20 years, for 20 years, a long time passed. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That so reminds me of the way we function in America. And what I'm talking about is not some kind of emotionalism, some kind of, hey, we need to, need to, need to, to have a rah-rah session. See, what the children of Israel weren't doing was just simple stuff. But where Satan's going to attack you is in those areas. 
If there's no foundation, the whole house crumbles. You know what? If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not feeding, you're not going to have a victorious walk. It's not going to happen. If I fasted the rest of today and didn't need anything tomorrow and then went Tuesday morning to try to work out, I wouldn't be able to lift anything. I hadn't, I'd had no nourishment. So if you're not reading your Bible, you're going day after day without being in the Word. When the enemy attacks you and your wife comes in and says, Hey, I thought we said we were going to do this. And you blow up. Sure you're going to blow up. You can't fight a fight when you're starving to death. Same thing with prayer. We know we're supposed to be praying. We know we're supposed to be praying without ceasing. What kind of relationship do you think I would have with my wife if I went two or three days at a time without ever talking to her. And yet, we'll go days without really having any concerted prayer and say, man, my relationship with the Lord just doesn't seem like it, it's like it used to be. And act shocked. We need to do what we, were, we know to do. Probably most everybody in here, at some point, you've been taught what to do for the Lord. You know the things that you have to do. Be in the Word. Be in prayer. Be in fellowship with other believers. Be telling other people about Jesus. We know what to do. We just don't do it. Effectively speaking, realistically talking about looking at our lives day by day by day, there's not a whole lot of difference between us and the world. Other than the fact that we've got a, a Jesus fish on the back of our car. And on Sunday we're here instead of playing golf. And some of us in our mind are off playing golf. Which leads me to something that the Lord's been working on my heart uh, this week. In the book of Habakkuk. We read about a guy named Habakkuk uh, who is in Israel. Or, I'm sorry, he, he's in Judah. Israel has already fallen. Everything has fallen apart in his country. All the children of Israel seem to be running around doing whatever they want to do. You've got a wicked nation that is surrounding them. And Habakkuk, who loves the Lord, who sincerely wants to serve God, is just fed up. Now, I've never really studied much in Habakkuk. But this week, the Lord has really used this because this is how I feel. In fact, on Facebook, I put this text. So Habakkuk starts crying out to the Lord. He says, oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong?" I mean, I feel like that when I'm watching the news, do you? It's like, God, how long are you going to let this go on? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I mean, you just watch the news. And apparently, if you've got enough money or have the right name, you can do whatever you want to do. Is there no justice in this world anymore? 
Habakkuk praying to God, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? And when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. God, why do you let sinners run rampant over people who are helpless? Why is it that every day I pick up the paper and some child has been hurt by some pervert? Why is it that every time it seems like I turn on the news, somebody who hasn't done anything is getting hurt by somebody? Why? Why is it that our policemen can't even walk to a, do their job without feeling like somebody's hanging around a corner going to shoot them? God, break into our culture. Does Habakkuk's prayer make, resonate with you like it has with me? It's like there is no good guy and bad guy. We're all gray hats. So Habakkuk gets angry and he, he goes through and in chapter 2 he says, I will take my stand at my watchtower and station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me and, I'll, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk says, look, I'm sick of this, God. So he goes to his watchtower. Apparently he had a watchtower. I wish I had a watchtower. Wouldn't that not be cool to have a watchtower at your house? He says, God, I'm going to my watchtower and I'm going to stay there until you answer me. And so he does. And the Lord answered him. Write the vision, he said. Make it plain on tablets. This is God talking. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. So what God is saying to Habakkuk, you don't worry about what's going to happen to the wicked people. It may seem slow to you, but my destruction will come. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. And so Habakkuk is told, you don't worry about what happens to all those people. I'll take care of that. And then he says, to Habakkuk, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, if the text ended there, we could have all kinds of conjecture of what exactly God was trying to say by the just shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by his faith. Except the story continues. First of all, when Habakkuk is exposed to the Lord, the Bible says, um, it's kind of like Job. When Job said, I want to talk to God, I want to talk to God, and then God actually showed up. Job, Job put his hand on his mouth and wouldn't say anything else. The, uh, Habakkuk had a similar response. When God actually showed up and started talking to him, he said, woe is me. And he said that his inside melted and, and uh, he wouldn't feel so hot. But then we get to see, after he says, I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So Habakkuk says, 
His faith is in God who will be faithful. See, so what we as Christians, as we look at the news and we see all these things that are going on, the one place that we have that we can be sure of, the only thing you can be sure of, is that God is faithful. God will do what he said he would do. God, as we learned as we studied Colossians, is enough. In fact, what Habakkuk learns is that that very encounter with God was enough to change his heart. Because the next statement Habakkuk says, which I, I have this framed in my office. I read this at every wedding I do. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take refuge in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. We cannot look to politicians to solve our problems. We cannot put our faith in another man. It won't work. And it seems like every four years we keep looking for who's going to be our Savior. A Savior came 2,000 years ago. We don't need another one. Our first allegiance in this church is not to a flag, but to a king and a kingdom. And we need to realize that that's where our allegiance lies and that God is enough. We need to drink deeply from the well that does not have any leaks. We need to run to the God of our salvation. We need to do what the children of Israel didn't do for 20 years. He needs to be enough. He needs to be our identity. He needs to be where we go. He needs to be where we look. He's enough. We are like people who have a steak dinner in front of us. And yet we're eating fun-sized Snickers. That analogy sounded way better in my head. But (laughs) God is enough. He's enough. We just aren't leaning on him. We're leaning on our own plans. We're devising our own ways. We're looking to this politician or this preacher or this guy. And all we need is Jesus. He's all we need. So Father God, I pray that this church would look to you. That these, your people, would look to you. That we would run to you. God, forgive us for how often we do everything but that. God, I pray that you would pour your spirit out on this place. As we come to this time of invitation, I would like to invite anybody who would like to to come here to pray for our nation. What our country needs is an encounter with God. We need a revival. We need the Holy Spirit to be poured out. So this altar is open for that. If you don't know Jesus, you can't run to him. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about how 
to meet Jesus. This altar is open for that. And if you're a Christian and you're not resting in Jesus for your identity, if you're not resting in him and going hard after him, then this altar is open.